Our scripture today comes from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's say amen together, church. Amen. Amen. Very good. We'll go ahead and take a seat. Let's turn together as a church to the passage that was just read, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Welcome to those of you who are online downstairs as well. I welcome you to uh, turn to that passage with us. We're continuing our series, Holy Transformed. In this great book of the New Testament, the book of Romans, and now is probably a good time to get a little refresher on the theology of the book of Romans. I want to be clear that nobody is going to get saved today by reading and applying Romans 13, okay? This is not the plan of salvation. And it's very clear as we look at uh, Paul and his argument, as we get to Romans 13, you know, Paul is dealing with the practical outworkings of our faith. So nobody's going to get saved by, you know, paying your taxes or obeying the government, or in this case, loving your neighbor or obeying the Ten Commandments. Paul spent the first 11 chapters of Romans showing us how to get saved. The first thing he did was actually get you lost before he got you saved, if you remember. I mean, his whole argument at the beginning was, you are holy and holy. And just about the time you're about to give up and say, I'm totally worthless, I'm not good for anything, I can't ever be saved, he shows you how to get saved. And then we have these great truths showing us the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, hallelujah, there's hope. We said in Romans 6, I know that was like a year and a half ago, but we did. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10, we heard that hope again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Hallelujah, there's salvation. So Paul spent 11 chapters building that, but now in Romans 12 and following, he's showing us the outworkings of what faith in Christ look like. He doesn't want you to just get saved. He wants you to live like you are saved. He wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to live your life in a spirit-transformed way, Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
He wants you to be attractive and compelling to the watching world. Not because your life is cool and hip and relevant and trendy. It's, it's really not. That's not even something worth going after. Your life is attractive. It's meaningful. Because your life is holy. Because you love God and you love other people. And you want to be obedient to what God has called you to do. And that's attractive. That's different. That's compelling. That's appealing to the watching world. If I could put what Romans 13, 8 through 14 is all about into one sentence. If I could put what Paul is writing here, these, what, seven verses into one concise sentence, here it is. Christians need to live their lives more like Jesus. How's that, Harvesticator? Y'all with me? Pretty good, huh? I know being succinct is not my best thing, but there you go. That's what Paul is telling us to do here. Be more like Jesus, Harvesticator. He wants us to be Christ-like, and he gives us this, this fantastic metaphor. He wants us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ like a garment. Did y'all get dressed this morning? I hope you did. He uses that image. Put on Christ like you do a garment. Be clothed in Christ Jesus. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Everybody with me? That is, that is such an important theological distinction. We put on the Lord Jesus, not in order to get saved. We love our neighbor, not in order to get saved, but because we are saved. So let's talk about that. Let's, put about, let's talk about how to clothe ourselves in Christ. You might say, how do we do that, Pastor Tony? How do we clothe ourselves in Christ? Three things. Loving, longing, and living. Let's start with loving. Clothe yourselves in Christ Jesus means, you can write this down as number one in your notes, it means loving others like Christ. Clothing clothing yourself in Christ means loving others like Christ. Paul says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Are Christians allowed to go into debt? Yes, I think the Bible allows for debt. But you have to pay those debts on time. Oh, no one anything, says Paul. So if you take out a loan for your house, you got to pay it on time. Sign that contract. you got to fulfill that obligation for your car or for your house or for your school. If you take $100,000 out in debt to pay for your school, you have to pay that back. You don't look to other people or the government to pay that for you. Okay. And, and by the way, can I just give you some fatherly advice this morning? Don't take out $100,000 worth of debt to pay for school. Okay? Go to Richland. Seriously. Like, keep it afoot. Your, your education should not cost as much as a house. That's crazy. And while we're on this topic, don't get a degree in 19th century polka dance music. Okay? Get a real degree that's going to make something in terms of living. Hashtag adulting. Grow up, people. Okay, I'm done. Let's move on. I just had to get that out of my system. 
Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. So even if you're, even if you're totally out of debt, you paid off your house, paid off your car, you got nothing. You are still in debt. Did you know that? You still owe. You still owe everybody love, says Paul. So you are a debtor, you are a borrower, and everybody else in the world, everybody else in this church is your loan shark, okay? You owe them something. What do I owe them, Pastor Tony? This sounds terrifying. You owe them love. Jesus Christ loved you. He died for you. He paid for your sins on the cross. You don't, you don't try to pay that back, but you do owe a debt of love to other people for the rest of your life. And you love 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 until you're dead. And then we'll just go on into love for eternity. That's what we do as Christians. Our Ken Hughes, he writes this. You can read this on the screen. It says, every time we meet someone, we ought to say to ourselves, I need to show him or her the love of Christ. I have a great and wonderful debt to pay. This should be a joyful thing. I got this, you know, Jesus did this for me. I'm, I have this opportunity to do this for other people. If you ever have had a personal debt, be it ever so small, you know that the first thing that enters your mind when you see that person is that you owe them. You see your loan officer at Culver's, you're like, oh man, I still owe that. You borrow 10 bucks from somebody, the first time you see that person, oh yeah, I owe that person money. That's the mentality we have with every person in the church and every person in the world. We owe them love. We owe them love. And I'm going to assume, when I use that word love, I'm going to assume you know what I mean by love. I'm going to assume that you know that I don't mean, and that Paul doesn't mean, silly sentimentality. If you love me, you'll let me do whatever I want. That, That is... That is not love. That is enabling narcissism. Love has conviction. Love is married to the truth. I mean, I feel like I've said this a lot, and it just bears repeating in this day. I know I've maybe argued this to death from this pulpit, but it just, we just need to say real love, biblical love, is deeper than the love in which the world tries to explain or define it. Biblical love is, is deeper than the world's love. It's better. It's sacrificial. It's married to the truth. It never, ever compromises truth. And you might say, well, can you give us an example of this kind of love in action, Pastor Tony? Does anybody come to mind when you think of love like this? Yes, somebody comes to mind. His name is Jesus. And he lived a life in this world, and he loved us, loved us more than we deserved. And he spoke the truth. He loved people. And he also spoke the truth. He rebuked people even when they believed lies or were bent on selfish gain. He died on the cross for the sins of other people who rejected him and hated him. He challenged people. He forgave people. He loved people. And the Bible says, go be like Jesus. The Bible says, go be like Christ. Christian, Christian, go be like him. Jesus says in John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now you also are to love one another. Now watch this. Watch where Paul goes next with this. Watch how he shows us how to live this out. He says, oh, no one anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Interesting. 
For what does the law say? Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, etc., etc., and any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds like Jesus. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, it's interesting here, speaking about love, Paul, Paul goes to the law, trying to explain love. He goes to the law. That is the exact opposite of what we do in our day. You know, we, we describe love as a kind of lawlessness. Like just do whatever you want, whenever you want, who cares? That, that's love. That, that is not how Paul defines love. That's not how the Bible defines love. To love somebody does not mean to forsake all the absolutes or the truth that God has given the truth that God has given us. That's not how Paul understands it. It's not, that's not how the Bible describes it. That's how people in our day define love. They just remove the law. By the way, people talk about freedom like that too. People talk about freedom. I have freedom to do whatever I want, whatever I want. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Like that's freedom. That's not the way traditionally that even our country has understood freedom. It's not how classically you would define liberty. And I'll, ju- I'll just give you an example of that. The, the Statue of Liberty in New York City. Y'all know the Statue of Liberty, right? La- Lady Liberty. What does she have in her right hand hold it up, held up before the world? She's got a lantern, right? And that's a symbol. We're lighting the way to freedom for the world. But what does Lady Liberty have in her left hand? Y'all know? Nobody ever talks about this. What she has is a tabula and sada used to symbolize the concept of law. She's got law in her left hand. And she's got the, the, the date of the signing of the Declaration of Independence written right on that, that tabula and sada, showing us that there's no liberty without a code of ethics. There's no such thing as freedom without law and a set of expectations. And I, I would say... Paul, similarly, he links freedom to truth, to a set of expectations. He links love to a set of expectations. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. Now, let's be clear. Let's just encapsulate the whole book of Romans here and the argument that Paul gives us throughout the whole book. Christ came to set us free from the penalty of the law. Praise God for that. But he didn't set us free to live a life of self-indulgence and lawlessness. He, He sets us free to love as the fulfillment of the law. Because what do you do? What are you doing when you obey the law? Thou shalt not commit adultery. What are you doing? You're loving your spouse by not having adultery, committing adultery with somebody else. You're loving someone else's spouse or someone else's future spouse by not committing adultery with that person. That is a perfect illustration, demonstration, living out of love. Do not commit adultery. What are you doing when you don't murder somebody? You're loving that person by giving them life and not taking away their life. Same with stealing, same with coveting, same with honoring your father and mother. Now, obviously, Paul here, he's quoting from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And what he's doing is he's he's specifically quoting from the back half of that Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Arkan Hughes, as he describes the Ten Commandments, he, he's, he shows us that there's, there's the first half of it, the first four commandments that are vertical and Godward. 
have to do with how we love God and how we experience a relationship with God. You have no other gods before me. No graven images. No taking the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those are vertical commands. How do we love God? But then what follows that in the last six commandments are, are the horizontal expectations for how you love other people. And how do you love other people? You don't lie. You don't steal. You don't murder. You don't covet, etc. The first four commandments are about loving God. The last six commandments are about loving people and loving others. That's why Jesus distills the law into a statement, love God and love other people. That's the whole of the law. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said this, you can read this on the screen. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, your strength. This is the great and first commandment. Verse four of the 10 commandments. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The last six commandments. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In fact, the whole Bible, Old Testament is summarized by this. And once again, as we think about this, this, this vertical expectation to love God, this horizontal expectation to love one another, who's the great example of this for us? Who models this for us? Jesus did. How did Jesus love people? How did he love one another? Well, he never, ever sinned against anyone. He never stole from anyone. He never lied to anyone. He never murdered anyone. He never even picked up a sword to defend himself. He told Peter, put away your sword. He honored his father and mother, even though his father and mother were sinners and flawed, unlike him. He never committed adultery. Just think about that for a moment. He never committed adultery. He wasn't a polygamist like Mohammed and Moses and Joseph Smith. He never harassed or abused women. Think about that in this Me Too era. I mean, that's always been the case with powerful men as they take advantage of that and harass women. Jesus never did that. And he had good relationships with women too. Mary Magdalene, Mary, Martha. Jesus is your example. Be like him. Love your neighbor like Jesus loved his neighbors. Don't sin against them. Paul says, oh, no one anything except to love each other. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. How do we do that? How do we do that, Pastor Tony? How do we love our neighbors? We live like Jesus. Or let me use Paul's language later. We clothe ourselves in Jesus. You get up in the morning, you put your pants on, put your jacket on, you put your shirt on, you button it up, you say, Lord, clothe me in Christ Jesus. May I put on the garment of Christ this morning. As people see me, may they see Christ. As I act and do things in this world, may I act and do things like Christ. We clothe ourselves in Christ. Write this down as well, number two. Clothing yourself in Christ means loving. It also means longing, longing for Christ's return. Paul says in verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Wake up, Christian. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, this is a bit cryptic, so let me, let me explain what Paul is saying here. 
When Paul says salvation is nearer to us than when we first believe, he's not talking about justification. He's talking about glorification. So quick review. We've talked about this before. There are three ways in which Paul uses the word salvation. He uses it to describe justification. He uses it to describe sanctification, us becoming more like Christ. And then he uses it to describe glorification, our future glorification. When we get glorified bodies, when Christ returns. So it's very accurate to say we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Justification, sanctification, glorification. What's Paul talking about here? Well, he uses two of those three terms in this sentence. He says, for salvation is nearer to us, that is, glorification is nearer to us now than when we first believed, when we got justified, when we put our faith in Christ. That's what he's saying. In other words, Christ is returning soon, says Paul, and we're about to enter into eternity with our new resurrection bodies. Hallelujah, it's near. And the great thing about aging, did you know there's a great thing about aging, about getting older, is you're getting closer to seeing Christ. You're getting closer to glorification. Nobody ever talks about that. We talk about how great it is to be young and how awesome it was when I was young. I could talk a little bit about that. But you know, there's something great about getting older. You're getting closer. You're nearer to salvation. You're nearer to glorification. You don't have many days left in this world. There's a good in that. There's something that Paul's even celebrating here. And he says, in light of that, in light of the fact that time is short and the nearness of your salvation is here, wake up, get to work, serve the Lord. That means that we don't just sit around in our homes waiting for Christ to return. We don't just waste away the day playing video games and watching Netflix and doing things that are irrelevant. We wake up and we work and we labor for Christ while we still can. And also, I think what Paul's getting at here, and he gets to this specifically in the next few verses, to wake up means you don't indulge the sins of your flesh. You're not like, woohoo, Jesus is coming back soon. Let's party like it's 1999. Let's, let's, let's live it up and sin while we can because someday we'll be holy. That is not the way we're supposed to live our lives. Paul's saying, wake up. We're longing for Christ's return. In the meantime, get to work and put away the deeds of the flesh. Put away the sinfulness of your flesh. And by the way, let me link this to love a little bit. If you love people in this world, if you, is everybody listening? If you really love people in this world, I mean love people. I don't mean like put some platitudes up in social media and talk about how you love people. I mean really get involved in the messiness and the brokenness of unlovable people. If you really do that, in this world, you will long for eternity. You will. If you get involved in what's going on in this world, if you really love people that are broken, you will long for eternity. Those things are linked. And I hope you really do love people. I hope you don't just while away the day watching Netflix and playing video games. I, I think there's probably a tendency with some people to say, Oh, this world's pretty good. I'm, I'm playing video games, having a good time, just not doing anything meaningful, don't really have any relationships with people, so I'm good. That's not the way that God asks us to live our lives. That's not how you love people. 
with all due respect to John Bon Jovi, and I want to give John Bon Jovi the respect he deserves. Ooh, heaven is not a place on earth. And this is not our home. And we are waiting desperately for Christ to return and make this place heaven on earth. And that's why we long for Jesus' return. That's why we long for eternity. Two mistakes Christians make. Two mistakes Christians make, okay? One mistake we make is that we isolate. We, we make our lives insular. We hide from the world. We just stay in our little safe Christian bubbles and we don't get invested in anything going on in the world. We don't rub shoulders with unbelievers. We, want, we, we like a nice, safe, cushy, isolated existence. That's a mistake. How, how are we sent ones? How are we ambassadors for Christ when we live our lives like that? Now, there's, a, there's another mistake that Christians make, and you guys know it. We see it all the time. Christians, they, they try to be like the world, live like the world, do whatever the world does, no distinction, and, and we're so much like the world that the world can't even tell us apart. Are you a Christian? I don't even know. You're just like me. That's a mistake, too. We've got, we've got to find a way to be in the world but not of the world. And you might say, once again, it. Do you have a good example of that, Pastor Tony? Yes, his name is Jesus. Have I mentioned him before? You know, Jesus, when you look at his life, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> I love those stories in Matthew and other places. I mean, he gained a reputation of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Jesus, really? Jesus. Because he loved people and he wanted to testify to sinners about who he was. And he came to heal the sick, not those who weren't sick or weren't even aware of their own need for him. And yet at the same time, Jesus, he lived totally separated from the world, from worldly influence influences. He lived a chaste, holy, and sinless life, but he was in the world and he loved the people of the world. Once again, Harvest Decatur, be like Jesus. And let me ease your conscience in that. You, you know, you will never be perfectly like Jesus. In fact, you've, al- you've already blown it. You've already blown it. Before you even got here this morning, you blew it. And it's a good time for just a theological reminder. We don't, we don't live like Jesus in order to earn our salvation or, or to garner favor with the Lord. You already have it. You already have favor with the Lord. He already loves you if you have faith in Jesus Christ. You already belong to him. So what Paul's saying is act like you belong to him. It needs to show up in your behavior and the way you live your life. And part of that, part of the way that's fleshed out is that you long for Christ's return. You long for it. And as you age, you long for it more and more and more. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. R. Kent Hughes, he said this. Speaking of that verse, verse 11, he said, we should also keep in mind that if Christ does not return in our time, he will certainly come individually for us in death. 
each ache, each pain, each gray hair, each new wrinkle, each funeral is a reminder that it is later than it has ever been before and we're close. Keep longing for Christ's return. And thirdly, clothing yourself in Christ means living in full obedience to Christ. Loving, longing, living. Living in full obedience. You might say, what does that mean, Pastor Tony? Living in full obedience to Christ. What does that look like? Well, I'm, I'm super thankful that Paul gets really specific in these next few verses. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, etc. Paul gets uncomfortably specific here. Look at what he says. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Christ's return is soon. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So now Paul's going to build this dichotomy here. There's night and there's day. There's dark and there's light. And it's, it's what he describes here is mostly metaphorical, mostly metaphorical, because there's a hint of the literal too. Because, I mean, let's face it, most sin happens at night, especially these sins. Paul's going to straddle the line between the metaphorical and the literal here. Look at verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Here's why I say that Paul's straddling the line between the, the metaphorical and the literal. Because when do most sins of orgies and drunkenness take place? At night. When does sexual immorality and sensuality take place? Mostly at night. Not always, but mostly. And that was especially true of the Gentile world that Paul is writing into. The Gentiles celebrated the night. So when your mama told you nothing good happens after midnight, your mama was right. Call her up this afternoon. You were right, mom. You're biblical. In fact, I heard this last week that in 1965 in New York City, they had this blackout throughout the city. The whole city lost power. All the lights went out. But it happened in the middle of the day. And it, I mean, it was like no big deal. Just, there was still light outside. You couldn't really get away with anything. So people just kind of waited until the lights came back on. No big deal. Well, 12 years later in 1977, New York City lost power again. But this time they lost power at nighttime, just before dark. And boy, that was a whole other story. There was looting, there was killing, there was starting fires, $300 million of damage in New York City. In one night, in one 12-hour span, people were begging for the lights to come back on. People couldn't wait for the sun to come back up so that all this darkness would stop and the deeds of darkness would stop. Now, obviously, that's not always the case. Sin happens in the daytime as well. The German reformer, Johannes Brenz, he says this. He's, he's really hard on Germans. So if you have a German last name, I'm sorry for this ahead of time. He says, in the morning and during the day, the ancients remained sober. They guarded themselves against getting drunk during the day. But with us Germans, there's a very different opinion. 
For with us, it's now come to the point that we start in the morning and we are wasted and wild the entire day. From this comes a proverb in German, drunk by first light, the whole day's a delight. And then Brins says this, such drunken living, however, suits those of us who want to be Christians very poorly. And don't fool yourselves. It's not just Germans. We celebrate this kind of debauchery in America and, and other cultures. And I agree with Bren's drunken living, living, drunken living suits those of us who want to be Christians very poorly. And I'll add to that sexual immorality. Sexual immorality likewise suits those of us who want to be Christians very poorly. That's why Paul, that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Let us cast off the works of darkness. That's what he says in verse 13, essentially, when he says, walk properly as in the daytime. He's saying that Christians should not get drunk. He's saying that Christians should not engage in sexual immorality. He's saying that if Christians get married, and, and let me circle that if, you can stay single. Paul was single. Jesus was single. But if you get married, you need to marry a person of the opposite sex and stay faithful to that person and not have sex with other people outside of your marriage. Is everybody listening? That's so basic, Pastor Tony. You don't even need to say it. I do need to say it in this day. People need to hear this. Christians should marry someone, one person of the opposite sex, and only ever have sex with that one person. That is an outworking of love as God has defined it. You might say, that's not what the world is telling us right now. The world is wrong The world doesn't know what they're talking about. This is real love lived out in Christian living. And before you get too proud of yourselves, you might say, I'm doing pretty good, Pastor Tony. Check, 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 check. Look at the end of verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Check, 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 check. I'm doing great, Pastor Tony. Not in quarreling and jealousy. How y'all doing with that? I'm being faithful to my wife, Pastor Tony. I'm being faithful to my husband, Pastor Tony. Good. Keep that, keep that up. Stay away from excessive use of booze while you're at it. How you doing with quarreling? I'm faithful to my wife, Pastor Tony, but we fight like cats and dogs every night. That's not great. I'm being faithful to my wife, Pastor Tony, but I I envy other people all the time. I want their jobs. I want their lifestyles. I want their personalities. I want their ability to influence people. You know what that is? That's garden variety jealousy right there. That's that's it's covetousness. That's the breaking of the 10th commandment. Can I just state the obvious again here? Jesus never broke the 10th commandment. Jesus never broke the 10th commandment. He never envied anybody. And you know, you think about that 
Jesus was born to peasant teenage Jews in the backwaters of Israel. His mother was pregnant before she had even married Joseph. Some of the Jewish leaders even alluded to this as an ignominious circumstance of his birth. Some people even mocked Jesus as being, you know, a, a hick from the sticks. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That small town? Jesus never envied the upbringings of other people. He never envied the authority of other Romans or other Jews or, or even the Romans. Jesus never said, boy, I wish I could just be a regular person. Why do I have to be the God man? Why do I have to be the Messiah? I just want to be an average Joe. Jesus never said that. He never coveted another person's life. And Jesus never quarreled either. Now, he had some arguments. He debated some folks. But he wasn't contentious for contention's sake. He wasn't seeking drama or self-approval. He was helping people find the truth. And again, we need to be more like Jesus. This entire sermon could have been 30 seconds. We need to be like Jesus. But for your benefit, I've elongated it into 40 minutes for you. You can thank me for that later. What is the essence of this? We need to be more like Jesus. Now, I do need to clarify. We're not trying to be like Jesus in order to gain God's love and acceptance. We're not trying to be like Jesus so that God will love us. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, God already loves us. Do you know that? Do you know that? I'm being straight with you right now. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, God already loves you. He loves you. Because you are in Christ Jesus. You're not trying to obey Romans 13 so that you can gain the love of God. You have the love of God. You have it. Live like that. Be like that. Be like Jesus because Jesus already loves you. And it pleases him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14, because you already belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Harvest Decatur. Living, longing, and loving. Be clothed in Christ Jesus. Be clothed in Christ Jesus. I want to close with this and then we'll take communion together. These last few verses in Romans 13 are famous not just because they're in the Bible, but because they were used to convert one of the greatest Christian thinkers in church history. Some people would say the greatest Christian thinker in the history of the church. An African scholar, a genius named Augustine. And some of you might say greatest. What about Calvin? 
What about Luther, Pastor Tony? Well, just for the sake of argument, just so you know, Luther was an Augustinian monk, and Calvin quoted Augustine more than he did any other scholar or church father. So Augustine had an incredible influence upon the church. But you see, Augustine, before he got saved, he was this brilliant fourth century thinker, but also he was a womanizer. He was a profligate. In fact, he was enslaved to his carnal urges for sexual pleasure. And despite his best efforts, he couldn't conquer these desires, these sexual cravings of his. And he bounced around from religion to religion, trying to find a remedy for his sinfulness. Well, one day he was sitting, he was unhappy, he was weeping in a garden, questioning the meaning of life. And he heard a child's voice begin to sing in Latin, tola lege, tola lege, tola lege, tola lege, which means take and read, take and read. And so after that, he randomly turned to this passage of Scripture. He turned, believe it or not, to Romans 13. You know, it's not like he went through the Romans road to get saved. He turned to Romans 13. This passage, 13 and 14, it talks about the flesh and all of the, the sinfulness of the flesh. And here's how Augustine says it in his book, Confessions. He says, so checking the torrent of my tears, I rose, interpreting it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then I returned to the place where Lippius was sitting, for there I had laid the volume of the apostle, Romans, when I arose thence. I seized, opened, and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell, Romans 13, 13. Not in rioting or drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in concupiscence. Concupiscence is a word that means fleshly desires or lust. It's an old King James word. You can impress your friends with that word later, concupiscence. How are you doing with concupiscence, brother? You doing okay? Yeah, good. Augustine said, no further would I read, nor needed I. For instantly, at the end of the sentence, by a light as if it were by serenity infused in my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Augustine got saved that day. He put his faith in Christ. He got saved by randomly reading Romans 13, 13, and 14. He didn't didn't get saved by somebody telling him, if you come to Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy the rest of your days. He didn't get saved by someone telling him, if you vote for Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true. He got saved by this verse that speaks about the flesh, telling us to stop being sinfully self-indulgent. And you know what? Augustine, to the best of his ability, was obedient to that passage. He lived a chaste life after salvation as best as he could. I mean, he wasn't perfectly sinless, like we're not perfectly sinless, but he did his best. He grew in Christ. He put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he grew in loving, longing, and living in full obedience to Christ. And you know what, Harvest Decatur, we can too. 
We can too. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh to gratify its sinful desires.